Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, very good to be with you today. Thank you so much. We have got some fascinating uh, new material uh, to go over. So uh, there's a new study of Catholic priests. This was done. Catholic University of America has just completed the largest survey of American priests in more than 50 years. And the results are fascinating. Dr. Tricia Bruce, uh, director of Springtide Research Institute, will be joining me. And uh, it's it is it's fascinating. It probably flies in the face of uh, some folks' uh, expectations about uh, the attitudes of those who have been ordained in recent years. So stay with me. We'll deal with that first segment on today's program. Alan Johnson is Senior Research Fellow at Britain Israel Communications and Research Center. And they, uh, he had, back in 2014, he delivered a speech in which he identified six myths that many in the West, usually people on the political left, so-called progressives, believe about Hamas. Nearly a decade later, we're still seeing those myths. Uh, We're going to go over those with him. And then uh, Chad Garcia, Vice President and Lead Portfolio Manager for the Ave Maria Focused Fund, will be joining us. Uh, the Federal Reserve has taken interest rates from near 0% during COVID to near 5%. Uh, is this reigning in inflation? So we'll talk about interest rates. Have they peaked? Also, in the second hour of today's program, we spend some uh, good time with uh, Dr. Steve Doran. He's a Catholic neurosurgeon, Catholic deacon, and has just uh, published, finally, a, an excellent book called To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. Uh, we're going to take some time with uh, Steve and go over some of the issues surrounding death. We'll also talk about what the concept of a happy death means, what a good death means, and uh, I think you'll find it absolutely fascinating. We touched on this uh, a few months ago, but I wanted to wait until the book was actually available to have the extended interview with uh, Dr. Steve Doran. So that's coming up. Right now, though, let's make sure we get today's headlines first. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, November 8th. It's the Feast of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria family of funds at AveMariaFunds.com. Ohio voters overwhelmingly approving a ballot referendum that adds a new right to reproductive freedom, including abortion and contraception, to the state constitution. With more than 95% of the vote tallied, more than 56% of voters selected yes for the adoption of Issue 1. Democrats are celebrating two big wins in the South after yesterday's elections. In Kentucky, Democratic Governor Andy Bashir secured re-election, and Democrats in Virginia flipped the House from red to blue while maintaining control of the state Senate. Meanwhile, Mississippi Republican Governor Tate Reeves survived his challenge from Democratic Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley. 
Well, a handful of Republican presidential hopefuls debate in Miami tonight. Former President Trump will be hosting a rally nearby. Mary University's Sean Foreman says Trump has been able to steal the spotlight during the first two debates. I think each debate is getting less and less viewership this time around. Uh, by now, November 3rd debate in Florida. This is really the time that people should be paying attention. Trump is dominating in the polls with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis behind him. Pope Francis has approved a miracle attributed to Argentine Cardinal Eduardo Peronio, paving the way for his beatification. The miracle involved the 2006 healing of a 15-month-old boy in Argentina who suffered a severe respiratory attack after he inhaled a toxic glitter powder. The boy was rushed to the ICU where his parents asked for the intercession of Pironio, their former bishop. The boy's condition improved and he was released from the hospital less than two weeks later. The Vatican Medical Board reviewing the healing said his rapid and complete and long-lasting recovery could not be explained scientifically. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. How do priests who were ordained in the 1970s differ from priests ordained today? Uh, What are the differences between priests ordained before and after the 2002 abuse crisis? Well, the Catholic Project has completed the largest survey of American priests in more than 50 years, and they've been releasing uh, the results, uh, you know, over time. And uh, we recently have another set of results, further insights from this national study of Catholic priests. And joining me is Dr. Tricia Bruce, sociologist, affiliated with the University of Notre Dame Center for the Study of Religion and Society. Her expertise is in the area of religion, specializing in U.S. Catholicism and social change. She's the author of several books, including Parish and Place, Making Room for Diversity in the American Catholic Church, and Faithful Revolution, How Voice of the Faithful is Changing the Church. You can visit her at trishabruce.com and follow her on Twitter, X, at Trisha C. Bruce. Tricia, good to have you with me. Thanks for taking the time. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Tell me about the survey itself. When was it administered and who participated? Absolutely. So this broader survey, which had multiple components, both a survey and interviews, uh, came out of the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America. And we actually surveyed 10,000 Catholic priests uh, and received 3,516 responses back. Uh, So it's a pretty large survey. In fact, one of the largest that's been conducted in over 50 years. But in addition to that, we wanted to talk to priests face-to-face in depth. And so had a team of uh, interviewers also interview more than 100 priests to be able to get a better sense of how they thought about their own well-being in light of 20 years into the abuse crisis here. Uh, And then lastly, it also contained a survey of bishops uh, to understand some of the similarities and differences between priest views and bishops' views. Oh, how many bishops participated? It was actually 131 bishops, which equates to 67% of the overall uh, bishops, so it had really strong participation. And and all of this data was gathered in 2022, uh, and so we continue to analyze and report from that larger study. Okay. Uh, So what's the headline on this most recent release? 
Yes. Yeah, so this one pays especially uh, special attention to the idea of both polarization as well as some of these generational dynamics that emerge, uh, differences between older priests, priests who were ordained earlier uh, in the 70s and, and so on, versus priests who were ordained more recently who are younger. And the headline here especially actually links those two pieces together. In other words, when we look at some of the differences, one of the key things that we observed is that there are far fewer more progressive priests among the younger or more recently ordained priests, and a much higher number who self-report as being uh, both theologically and politically either conservative or more moderate, uh, which is, is is a pretty drastic change if you look over the uh, dynamics of recent years. Um, essentially, the old Vatican II era of the priesthood is largely disappearing and being replaced by a very different conception and identity of priesthood. Today. Yeah. So the the uh, after the Second Vatican Council, the way the story is told, there was a, a lot of confusion about uh, application of the council. Um, priests, bishops uh, were more open for experimentation or unusual application. Uh, they adopted labels uh, like a progressive, uh, liberal. Uh, that has that era has passed is is that how i read this yes you know there i think was so much experimentation and innovation in a post vatican II church that mm-hmm. was really trying to understand itself yeah. and priests were at the forefront of that change not only as as leaders in in parishes and as members of dioceses um, but also as priests themselves trying to understand their new role particularly in in the wake of language around the people of god and sort of understanding the lady's role yep. and um and and then how, you know, all of these shifts have sort of evolved over time and also interfaced with the massive uh, tragedy that was the crisis of abuse and revelations that came out of that. And so I think that um, it created another moment of, in some ways, an identity crisis, both for the church and for priests. And so now there's a bit of a, a reaction to, to both. So the reaction to the wave of priests who came in after Vatican II rethinking their role, and now a reaction too, to what does it mean to be a priest trying to restore trust in a church whose trust had been damaged? Did you survey uh, attitudes uh, between priests and bishops? In other words, uh, do priests um, feel as though their bishops have their back? Yeah, it's a great question, because one of the things that we especially wanted to pay attention to was this notion of trust, not only between everyday lay Catholics and priests, but also between priests and their bishops. And it actually varies pretty widely. Mm-hmm. So we looked at those that gap in trust across different dioceses, and it it is quite a range. In fact, there's a graph inside this recent report that shows this wide range of the average percentage of diocesan priests who express a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the decision-making and leadership abilities of their diocesan bishop. And it is it spans the spectrum. Uh, and so I, I think it's, it's worth saying that um, certainly there's a wide array of feelings about uh, one's own bishop or just, um, you know, which vary from a high level of confidence to a high level of skepticism mm-hmm. uh, between mm-hmm. priests and bishops today. Yeah, yeah. Now, when we talk about uh, progressive uh, or uh, uh, 
very progressive or uh, conservative or, or very conservative compared to what? And in other words, those are com- those are comparative elements. So progressive okay. to compared to what? Conservative, very conservative compared to what? Yeah, it's it's a definitely a great question to ask, and also just to um, say too that this is sort of self-reported, yeah. and so it it sometimes can be self-understood differently. So we have to understand the limitations of any question to ask. That um, the other thing that's worth pointing out here is that we we ask self-identity uh, in terms of theology and in terms of politics, mm-hmm. and oftentimes those two pieces align, but not always. Um, but what we can say from this data. Uh, given the constraints of the questions and labels that we might use, is that there are very noticeable differences, again, especially along generational lines, whereby younger priests and priests who have been ordained more recently are much less likely to adopt labels for themselves that include progressive or very progressive, whereas uh, they once made up a high level of a high percentage of new ordinance to the priesthood. Today, that number has dwindled to almost zero. So there's really a sea change in self-identification among priests uh, from more progressive to more conservative or orthodox, depending on which word you want to use. Mm-hmm. So the youngest, then, the, in a sense, the, the rule seems to be the younger the priest, the more conservative or orthodox they are. Or that's, that, right. that's how they that's define right. themselves. Because that's, that's yes, important. and how do they define each other? You know, okay. also you know the the interview data also brought out some really rich comparisons. You know, talking about even even uh, commentary on how other priests might choose to to dress, um, mm-hmm. or you know what they might wear to the diocesan barbecue. <laughs> differences okay. of opinion um, along those lines, um, but also just really different interpretations of what those identities mean. You know, in some cases, creating gaps in conversation or ability to proceed forward on on shared goals, Um, but in other forms, just different ways to describe their role as priests. You know, again, the, the abuse crisis really coming into play here, too, priests saying that Part of the reason why they might adopt a more orthodox perspective and represent the church in perhaps a more formal way is because they see themselves as bringing the church back into a place that can be seen as trustworthy and worthy of holding a sense of authority. Um, and so there's there's a, a, a gap in understanding potentially that um, that hopefully even a study like this can help begin to to bridge as far as bringing some common language to the conversation. Did the study uh, compare attitudes uh, to Pope Francis? Yeah, so the the study also wanted to ask about accountability to to the Pope and the perception of Pope Francis in particular, who in some cases has been talked about as a bit of a lightning rod dividing some of these uh, polarized Mm -hmm. camps, as it were, of priests. Um, Overall, priests do uh, definitely value their accountability to the the Pope, Mm -hmm. Um, but here, too, there is a generational difference. So among the 
priests who are ordained more recently, they're somewhat less likely to say that they value being accountable to Pope Francis. Um, and in the interviews also, there's a, a little bit of a both and, a recognition very much so um, adherence to the overall authority of the Church and the authority of Pope Francis, while also recognizing that perhaps there's some disagreement with regard to different statements that might be made or approaches to living out the church in the world. Is it, is it right to say that the survey indicates that the more theologically conservative or orthodox a priest uh, claims, that, that also he will be politi- theologically conservative? Does that mean he's going to be also politically uh, uh, more conservative? Generally speaking, yes, but the um, there are more priests here who told us that they describe themselves as uh, conservative, orthodox, theologically, than describing themselves as uh, politically in the same way. So there's there's a higher um, impulse to the theological uh, conservative um, view, although there's a there's certainly a strong overlap between the two. There's sure. also a little bit of a disappearance of the moderates. So it used to be that priests, and, and certainly among older priests too, there's a higher likelihood that they might describe themselves as, as moderates, uh, whereas now that that too is, is fading. Did you ask questions? We've only, we've only got about 30 seconds left, but did you ask questions about uh, if they were thinking of leaving the priesthood? Overall, priests say that they are are satisfied with their life as a priest and really see it as a true call and a vocation. There were only a very few small cases who indicated a a desire to leave, Uh, Mm. but they are certainly very much immersed in this changing experience of the church uh, that affects both priests and lay people, including this renewed opportunity to respond to the experience of abuse, too. Tricia, thank you so much. This is very helpful. I'm looking forward to immersing myself in the study more. Uh, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to be with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Tricia Bruce uh, is a sociologist affiliated with the University of Notre Dame Center for the Study of Religion and Society. We're celebrating All Saints Day, and on this week's Pull of the Week, we want to know which one is your favorite. There's lots of great ones to choose from, so go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to let us know. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. You remember the time I said on the air, go to confession, and when you're done, go out and have a big ice cream soda. Celebrate. And a man wrote to me, he said, you know, I hadn't gone to confession in 30 years. Do you mind if I went and had a pizza? I said, oh, have 20 pizzas. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. What is catechesis and why do we care? The job of catechesis is to reveal all the joy as well as the demands of the way of Christ, says the Catholic Catechism. The way of Christ is summed up in the catechesis of the Beatitudes, Jesus gave us the eight Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount. The Catholic Catechism tells us this teaching is the only path that leads to the eternal Beatitude, happiness, for which the human heart longs. The Catechesis of Sin and Forgiveness challenges us. 
Unless man acknowledges that he is a sinner, states the Catechism, he cannot know the truth about himself, which is a condition for acting justly, and without the offer of forgiveness, man could not bear the truth. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at prolifeacrossamerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Ciao, amici. Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio Online Store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping! Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Back in 2014, after uh, the 50-day military conflict between Israel and Hamas, Alan Johnson gave a speech uh, about the six myths regarding Hamas. Uh, that speech was just uh, reissued today, and it is stunning uh, how relevant it is, given what we've seen in public opinion regarding Hamas and Israel. Alan is a senior research fellow at the Britain-Israel Communications and Research Center and editor of its journal, Fathom. He's also the editor of the book, Mapping the New Left Antisemitism, the Fathom Essays. And you can learn more about his work at bicom.org.uk and fathomjournal.org. And we'll have all these contacts for you at our website as well. Alan, good to have you with me. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me out. So, give us some idea of what public opinion is like uh, among the British concerning this, uh, the October 7th and its aftermath. 
Well, I think there's two, there's a split in British public opinion. I think obviously there's huge demonstrations in London, ostensibly for the Palestinians, but often on those demonstrations it's pretty openly for Hamas, some people even shouting for jihad. Mm-hmm. So I think there's people, I would say, generally speaking, on the far left of British politics and many in the Muslim communities influenced by Islamism who are who are very, very anti-Israel, tearing down posters of the kidnapped, shouting for Palestine from the river to the sea and so on. I think for a lot of Britons, though, there's a, a lot of resentment in that. This weekend is our Remembrance Weekend where we solemnly remember our war dead and the Palestinian campaign has refused to call off its demonstration, which is going to coincide in the middle of London. That's caused a lot of resentment in Britain. And I think a lot of Britons do see exactly what Hamas is, which is a terrorist organization, attacked Israel in the most barbaric way on October the 7th, and they, um, they really oppose that. What often happens, though, and I'm sure it's the same in your country, is that those who speak who shout the loudest often get the most attention, and that's certainly what's happening with the demonstrations in, in London. Yes. I mean, it, it is amazing here, especially on college campuses, where we see students uh, happily chanting, um, uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And it, it, it's hard to imagine them saying that, uh, smiling, uh, when in fact the, the, per- <laughs> the meaning of the phrase is the obliteration of Israel. Uh, you have to wonder, do they realize that? Uh, so it's, it's hard to know. For me, it's hard to know. Um, yeah, I think there's, again, there's probably two groups. I think the organizers of the demonstration certainly know exactly what they're calling for, which is the obliteration of Israel, which, by the way, is the very word used in the Hamas charter, yep. <laughs> founding principles from 1988. I think there's a lot of other people who don't like war, as none of us do, who, who see the scenes on their television and they want it all to end, and they'll, they'll join the demonstration on that basis. But sure. it, is, it is a Hamas slogan, and it only has one meaning for Hamas, which is the obliteration of Israel. Yeah. Let's go over, you, you cited uh, myths, six myths about Hamas. If you don't mind, I'd like you to just run through those for us. The first myth being... Um, well, the first myth is that the blockade that Israel has over Gaza was motiveless and cruel and unnecessary, and that Hamas's rocket attacks only began once the blockade started. This more or less reverses history. What actually happened was Israel left Gaza in 2005. The rockets began immediately, by the way, Mohammed Diaz, the Hamas bomb maker, uh, started the rockets immediately and timed them for the school run around Sarot and so on. Um, Hamas controlled the whole of Gaza from 2007 when it carried out a coup through from rooftops its Palestinian rival Fatah. And at that moment, not just Israel, but also Egypt instigated uh, the controls around Gaza to stop it being used as a base for terror against those two countries. So that's the first myth, that the blockade was motiveless and cruel, when in fact it was absolutely necessary to prevent Hamas using it as a terror base. Yeah. The second yeah. myth is that Hamas wants peace and is being ignored by Israel. Hamas considers the killing of Jews and the obliteration of Israel to be a religious duty. It wrote those commitments into its founding charter in 1988, which says there's no solution except jihad. Yeah. Um, it, it 
cites a canonical hadith, which and a hadith is kind of second in line to the Quran itself. It's supposed to be the, the authorized sayings of the Prophet. Um, and one of those hadiths, which is in the Hamas Charter, talks about in the end times, the Jews will all be killed, and the trees themselves will shout out, there's a Jew hiding behind me, come and kill him. And that's written out into the Hamas Charter. A Hamas leader last week talked about wanting two, three, four, October the 7th, until Israel was no more. The Hamas children's television, if, if, if your listeners go online, they can Google this pretty easily, you'll see the shows there, which have been captured by an organization called Memory, and you'll see the translations. And they're, they're really educating the children from a very early age to, to be anti-Semitic and to want to kill Jews. So it's simply not true that Hamas wants peace. The, the third myth is that the rockets are no big deal and Israel should simply live with them and that Hamas's military threat doesn't really amount to very much. Again, this is totally untrue. Um, Hamas now has about 30 to 40,000 operatives, so 30,000 rockets. It has drones. It has SEAL teams. Um, it has Iranian-supplied missiles, um, which can really reach as far as Tel Aviv and further. The Iran's Fata 110 missile is ballistic. It has a uh, 200-kilometer range. It has a warhead of 500 kilograms. And really what's happened in Israel since October the 7th, I think, is the understanding that this is now an existential fight for the country. It's a fight for its existence. Hamas will keep coming again and again. It will acquire, what, acquire whatever weaponry it can or be supplied that weaponry from Iran until it pursues its goal. So it's an existential question now for Israel to, to move into Gaza and to remove Hamas. I think the fourth myth is that Israel targets civilians in Gaza. Again, totally untrue. Um, the dilemma is an excruciating one, which is how do you stop a terrorist organization which has implanted its personnel and its weapons in civilian centers, hospitals, schools, residential sites? What, what Israel does is it gathers intelligence, it issues warnings, and it limits its use of its own firepower. The result of those uh, actions are that and obviously every civilian death is a tragedy. No one wants to see any civilian deaths. But when you look at the ratio between combatant and non-combatant deaths, so non-combatants being civilians, your country and mine certainly do a lot better than the Russians and the Syrians of this world. Yeah. So Israel, in its conflict, does better than your country and my country. It, it, it has achieved some remarkable numbers in terms of managing to keep civilian deaths down. So, again, that's a myth. The other myth is I think that media reports reporting from Gaza is free and that we can trust what's coming out of the information from Gaza. It's simply not true. Um, Gaza controls, intimidates, and manipulates the media. Um, the Foreign Process Association um, issued a report about exactly this in 2012, that its own reporters were being intimidated by Hamas. So they, they weren't supposed to report that rockets were inside schools. They weren't supposed to send out the wrong kind of photographs and so on. The media has remained quite credulous, though. And the, the, the real example of this was, of course, on October the 17th, when the media, including the BBC, managed to accept uncritically Hamas propaganda about what had happened at the hospital at the that hospital, night, and it yeah. went around the world. So the world was told that Israel had bombed the hospital and there were more than 500 deaths, and that 
that was put out by your New York Times, Washington Post, BBC. The BBC reporter, John Donison, even said, I can't imagine any other, um, you know, perpetrator in Israel for this, which was an incredible thing to say because everybody knows that in previous conflicts, about 20% of Hamas rockets are what's called fall shorts. They fall short of reaching Israel and they, they strike areas within the Gaza Strip. Uh, and it turned out that this was a, actually one of the smaller terrorist groups, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, who'd fired a rocket. It didn't hit the hospital. It hit the, the car park of the hospital. It didn't kill 500 people. I think there was some dozens um, killed, but, but the, the, the word had gone out around the world. So there's a real problem with accepting the media reporting out of um, uh, Gaza. And the last myth is just, it's um, perhaps a harder one to grasp, but as soon as you, you get the idea of it, you see it all the time, which is people seem to think Palestinians have no agency, have no choice, and therefore have no accountability and no responsibility for what they do, but that Israelis have all the responsibility and all the accountability. And this really infantilizes the Palestinians as a kind of also a racism of low expectations. So whatever the Palestinians do, it seems to be excused and blamed on the Israelis. So when the Palestinians came over the border, by the way, in battalion strength, in huge numbers, and carried out the most barbaric attack and mass murder of Jewish people since the Holocaust, mm -hmm. in this country, it was only hours before some people were marching in the streets in favor of the glorious resistance. And this is a, it's a view that I think has been pushed out from the universities, from academia for decades now, and it's spread from there into all of our institutions. Um, and this is a really crude view of the world, which splits it into two camps, really. There's a bad camp, which is America and Britain and Israel and the West, and it's called colonialist and racist and imperialist and capitalist. And the good camp is anybody shooting at the bad camp. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it doesn't really matter what the people in the band, in, in the other camp are say. They can be the most reactionary people. They can be against women's rights. They can be against uh, equality. They can be dictators. But as long as they're shooting at the bad camp or bombing the bad camp, they're seen as the resistance. And this is a complete loss of a moral compass. Um, so that you end up with young students on campuses. Uh, I think was, I've read about one of your your liberal arts college campuses where they created a shrine yeah. to the martyrs of the resistance, and they were placing teddy bears on it. And this is a serious problem for Western societies when our young people yeah. have lost their moral compass to this extent. But it's, it's, the universities have been pumping this out. So if you take a figure like Judith Butler, who's a, an American academic, no one's really more faded than her on the campuses. And she said, um, it's very important that we understand that Hamas and Hezbollah are progressive and part of the global left. She said, oh. This is amazing. Oh. So there's this inversion of reality and an inversion of morality going on. And there's a real crisis and a real task for us to, yeah. to reach these students and, and give them a different perspective. Alan, let me thank you for taking the time to be with me today. Very helpful. And, um, yeah. It is. It's uh, so frustrating. Thank you. Thank you. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. 
Kiro's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfkiro.com to learn more. That's cmfkiro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic Law School in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. You remember the time I said on the air, go to confession. And when you're done, go out and have a big ice cream soda. Celebrate. And a man wrote to me, he said, you know, I hadn't gone to confession in 30 years. Do you mind if I went and had a pizza? (laughs) I said, oh, have 20 pizzas. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Connection with Teresa Tomio. A conversation I had several years ago with uh, one of our listeners who wrote to me and said she was being challenged by a friend or a cousin or someone regarding the church and various teachings, especially on marriage and abortion and whatnot. And she said, I need the answers and I need them quickly because I want to quiet this person and shut them down. And I wrote her back and I said, I'm not going to give you the answers. I will give you some resources, such as the link to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I said, but you need to look these up and you need to read them over and you need to learn them because this is not going to be the last time that you're going to be challenged or questions about your faith. And what good is it if you're just barking answers to someone and you're not able to explain them charitably? This is a way we all should learn by doing the work ourselves. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. When families create daily rituals for playing together, they don't just prioritize creating a joyful family life, they're building a holy family life too. Playing board games and card games, having family movie nights, taking short walks or hikes, shooting hoop, playing catch, doing crafts, and other similar activities aren't just healthy ways families have fun. They're ways Catholic families can teach healthy attitudes toward play. In a world where fun is often equated with sinful or destructive behaviors, family play rituals help parents teach kids healthy, godly ways to enjoy themselves. That's one reason family rituals for playing together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. 
It's been a while since we got an overview of the economy. And, um, of course, now we're talking about rating in inflation. The Federal Reserve has taken interest rates from near 0% during COVID to now uh, 5%. Is this a strategy that's working? Uh, my guest, Chad Garcia, is Vice President of Schwartz Investment Council, Inc., and Lead Portfolio Manager of the Ave Maria Focus Fund, one of our uh, sponsors here on Crest in the Afternoon. He's also Co-Portfolio Manager of the Ave Maria Growth Fund and responsible for the equity research functions for the firm. In the past, Chad analyzed public equities as a managing director at SQ Advisors, and before that, he had worked in private equity as a managing director at Gulf Coast Capital Partners and as vice president at Comvest Partners. Chad, good to have you back. Thanks. Nice to be here, Al. How are you doing? Doing fine. And, um, you know, looking at how would you assess the state of the economy right now? Well, we had massive amount of inflation to deal with coming out of COVID, given interest rates going to zero and then the massive amount of government stimulus. And to deal with that, the Fed has had to raise interest rates, which they've taken it from basically zero to 4.5% on the 10-year, which on an absolute basis is not that high certainly be below historical standards, but the rate of change, you know, doing that in 18 months yeah. was, was, was pretty massive. And so I, I'm surprised that nothing has, has broken so far. We did have a scare with the regional banking crisis a little earlier in the year, but everything seems to be holding in strong. Mm-hmm. Um, unemployment have, rates... Have interest have, rates peaked, by the way? I, I think they have. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, the, the Fed's not going to come out and say they, you know, ring the ring the bell and say we've we've won inflation. Uh, Jay Powell, his time as Fed chair is going to be coming to an end, and he doesn't want to leave high inflation, so he's going to talk tough. But if you look at unemployment, is is starting to go up. Uh, the, the CPI inflation number was at three point seven percent last month. That's down from its peak of nine point one percent. You know, oil price is around $75 a barrel. That's coming down. So inflation is, is certainly heading the right way now. You know, there's some things that could come out and endanger that. But right now, everything's looking great. Uh, uh, is the fear of recession still in the air? Yeah, I think people have been afraid about a recession for a long time. Yeah. But, but, but the fear is still in the air. You know, the question is, is the landing going to be soft landing or is it going to be a hard landing? And mm-hmm. So, like the arguments for a stro- for a soft landing is that the consumer is strong. You know, the, you know, we are starting to see some cracks in in the cons- in consumer spending and and um, their ability to spend. You credit card debt has reached its highest level of one point one trillion dollars. That being said, the level of credit card debt versus the amount of money that people have as cash in the bank um, is at one of the lowest rates in 20 years. So while credit card debt is high, people also have high cash balances. Mm, okay. the, the lower end of the consumer, you know, the subprime level is starting to show some cracks and, and delinquency rates are starting to creep up. You know, right now, about 3% of all debt in the country is delinquent. And, you know, while that may seem high, if you look at same period, you know, pre-2008, 
pre-COVID and you know, Q4 2019, it was it was much higher. So even though you know three percent sounds bad, it's not as bad as as one would, as, as it was, yeah, as it normally is. Yeah, um, the labor market is, is strong. Uh, if we do get a recession, the recession would be you know made by the Fed, you know made by them taking rates up you know, mm-hmm. as, as quickly as they did, which, as opposed to if you look at the great financial crisis, there was, a, there was, a, there was an external event with the, the housing market collapsing, right. or if you look at COVID, the government forcing government, the economy to basically shut down. You know, large external events are harder to deal with than if it's just a slowdown from rising interest rates because the yeah. Fed... So this would be controlled. I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, controlled. Yeah, yeah. And the and the feds are, the rates are high now, so there's room for them to to bring things down, if, bring the rates down if they need to, or or you know pull some other levers in order to get the economy going again. So what worries me would be more about more an external event. I mean, if you look at the geopolitical situation around the world, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like the world's getting any safer. It seems, it no. seems like we're yeah. on the precipice of a lot of hot wars in several locations. Yeah, no, that, I, I agree. I, I told my my kids that uh, I don't recall uh, the geopolitical situation appearing so unstable uh, in all, all my years of, of watching. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I understand. Uh, presidential election uh, coming up next year. Uh, you know, d- d- in your estimation, uh, do either assuming that President Biden will run and that his uh, opponent will be uh, former President Trump, do, do any one of them strike you as especially strong at handling the economy? Well. I don't think the S and P has ever been down in a presidential year, because the party that's in power, you know, wants to keep it up in order to <laughs> remain remain in office. <laughs> right. Yeah. But um, you know, both both President Trump and President Biden are, are populists. They just appeal to different parts of the population. Yeah. And so, you know, I. It, I would hope that we we would get a leader that starts to deal with the excessive amount of debt that the U.S. economy has right now. I think that's something that we need to really focus on. And I don't know if, if President Trump or Biden, unless forced to by the market, you know, would be keen to take on that issue. Yeah, yeah. How, how bad is it? How, how bad is our debt in relationship to our productivity? Well, we're north of 100% of that's GDP, and that you know typically starts to spell problems. Yeah. But you know, can that continue? As as long as and as investors are willing to buy government debt, then uh, then they can, they can keep going. Mm-hmm. But I would I would I would hope that uh, we we start to deal with that because if if interest rates are going to be higher, you know as debt comes due, the government needs to refinance that. And so that's that's where you get into the problems of more and more of the of the government expenditures going to interest payments. Yeah. Let me let me ask you about uh the markets. Uh and you know best time for investing. Uh your estimation, uh we have not recovered, at least on the Dow, we've not recovered to our high point yet. And um you know, I'm not sure where it closed yesterday, but uh, 
you see do you see the market um, regaining the strength that it had uh, two two three years ago well I'm more focused on the companies that are in uh, the primary focus fund as opposed to the overall market. And, uh, and you know, the S&P this year has – the S&P 500 has been quite quite strong, and uh, the Abermedia focus fund has been much stronger. So that, that keeps me happy. But, you know, with respect to when's the best time to invest, if you're a long-term investor, you know, it's best just to, to – Stay invested Sit tight. Stay in the market. Yeah. I mean, if you if you look at the last thirty years, the S and P generated a nine point nine percent per annum return. And you know, if if you were worried about timing it, then I think p- people that are worried about timing it would get in and out, and they do it at the wrong times, and they don't they don't realize that that nine point nine percent compounded over thirty years, which would which is well over a thousand percent return. I think it's one dollar turns into thirteen dollars. Yeah. In yeah. Change. And so, you know, if I were a long term investor, I would just worry about making the same investment every month at the same time and, you know, automate it and not look at the what the market's doing every yeah. month. Okay. Uh, back to this idea of debt you pointed out in some notes that you sent me that we went from five trillion in debt in 2000 to 31 uh, trillion in debt today. Uh, how big a, is that a I would have to think that that's a drag on our economy, is it? Well, the more money the government has to spend on interest on the debt, the less they have to spend on other expenditures, yeah. which, which fuels GDP, right. or the more taxes they have to take from consumers to pay the debt, which takes money away from consumers' ability to, to spend and, and fuel GDP. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the concern that we have with such a high unsustainable amount of debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to see... A, a political candidate who wants to tackle the debt is someone who's going to have to make a lot of hard choices, which will not be popular. And so he's apt to lose uh, his base of support. Is that a fair way of putting it? That That's fair. It's, it's easy to, to do things like, you know, spend more than you have yeah. uh, when you know, as a politician, because it brings short-term gains to the constituents, but it, um, long-term pain, and politicians are worried about the next election and not the long-term, but it's going to be the market that's going to have to f- force this upon government to deal with. And the way that it does it is it just it requires a higher interest rate for the debt that the government wants to sell it. So if the government's going to sp- spend more than they have, they'll have to issue debt and the in order to issue debt they have to be able to sell that to investors mm-hmm. and if the investors the investors want to get paid to take it then you know maybe the interest interest rates go up because the investors say I need more more re- interest to uh, to take on take it take on the debt and you know that that's what's gonna force the government to deal with it so let's, let's everybody jump. thinks of the walls that Everything says the Federal Reserve sets the interest rate. They set the short-term rate, but the long-term rate set by the by the market. Yeah. 
Let, let me jump to the, the Ave Maria Focused Fund. Uh, it was launched in May of 2020. Uh, how's it doing? It's doing great. Uh, you know, this year, it's up over the one-year period about 20 percent. Its Ooh. benchmark is wow. is up um, only around four percent. So it's um, it's handedly uh, beating its beating its benchmark. So yeah, we're, we're quite happy with it. And um, if you look at Morningstar, which is a company that that um, ranks mutual funds, it's on the one-year basis. It's you know, as of yesterday, it's in the top four percent of of its comparable funds, and so wow. we're pretty happy with that. That's fantastic. Um, for people, since we haven't talked for a while, for people who are unfamiliar with the Ave Maria uh, funds, just tell us what you do. Sure, we have a family of six mutual funds, and we invest. On, on behalf of our clients, we have over 100,000 clients, individuals, churches, endowments, etc. And we do it in a way that doesn't conflict with the teachings of the Catholic faith. So we have moral screens, and these screens are, are various activities that, that we believe conflict with our faith, and we screen those companies out and don't have any exposure to the companies that participate in offensive activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so this is uh, this is for Catholics who are very observant and want to make sure that their uh, investments are uh, you know in accord with their faith commitments. Uh, the Ave Maria Mutual Fund is a great place to be. Uh, it's the largest Catholic mutual fund family in the U.S., right? That's still the case. It is. It yeah. is. And right now we have just under three billion under management within the. Fun family. Yeah. Tell people how they can get a hold of uh, the Ave Maria funds and get more information. Sure. They can call us at 866 Ave Maria or visit us online at AveMariaFunds.com. That's 866 Ave Maria. Or give me the URL again AveMariaFunds.com. AveMariaFunds.com. Chad, good talking with you again. Uh, that nice won't, be, you. won't be so long next time. Thanks. Chad Garcia is Vice President of Schwartz Investment Council, Inc., and Lead Portfolio Manager of the Ave Maria Focused Fund and Co-Portfolio Manager of the Ave Maria Growth Fund. I'm Al Cresta. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. Maybe you've even prayed the prayer of spiritual communion. Spiritual communion is a concept that goes all the way back to the 4th century. It flourished in the Eastern Church and gradually moved west. Spiritual communion stresses the transcendence of God, where we unite our desires, intentions, and loves with the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration of the Eucharist at the altar. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. I was raised a Catholic and went to church every Sunday faithfully. I met a boy and he was 
non-Catholic, so I left the church to be with him. When I was away from church, I yearned to be home. What brought me back was my longing for the Eucharist. The Eucharist fills me with a spirit that you can't find anywhere else. I have a peace when I walk through the doors of the Catholic Church, like that's where I belong. We invite you to take another look at the Catholic Church. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, reminding you we've got another hour coming up. And my guest will be practicing neurosurgeon, Dr. Stephen Doran. He has um, published just recently a book called To Die Well. It's a Catholic neurosurgeon's guide to the end of life. We're going to be going over so many issues, touching on the world of bioethics, but also upon pastoral care. So stay with me. We've got a lot more to come. I'm Al Cresta. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta thanking you for joining me. We've got a very uh, serious topic in front of us, uh, but it's a topic which is ultimately... uh, meant to uh, lead us in the way of the disciple, to die well. Uh, my guest will be Dr. Stephen Doran. He is a uh, practicing neurosurgeon, board, board certified with over 25 years of experience. He's also an ordained permanent deacon and serves as the bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. He's uh, written professionally uh, on neurosurgery, gene therapy for brain disorders, and he's been widely published in uh, national media outlets and academic journals. We're going to talk about the material that he presented in his recent book, To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. This is becoming an essential area of conversation. Canada just released its annual, uh, what they call a medical assistance in dying report. I'll just use euthanasia. Um, More than 13,000 Canadians received uh, euthanasia last year. Uh, That's about 4.1% of all deaths in the country. Uh, This is a growing area. Um, Thankfully, uh, lots of doctors don't want to participate uh, but uh, there's also some indication, at least in uh, Ontario, 
that if you refuse to participate in euthanasia or ref- and refuse to uh, refer to a doctor who can uh, uh, kill the qualified patient, then you could be subjected to medical discipline. Most of us, though, don't serve uh, as as professionals in healthcare. We are concerned as disciples of Jesus Christ as to how to navigate these questions concerning death and maintain the traditional Catholic understanding of dying well, uh, what's called a good death, in some cases a happy death. What does that mean? And we're going to go over that. We're going to go over the uh, ethics involved here. We're going to go over pastoral practices. We're going to be uh, talking about the technological issues surrounding um, uh, late-life medicine. So stay with me. Uh, My guest again will be Dr. Stephen Doran. But right now, let's get the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Wednesday, November 8th, it's the Feast of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. A report says discussions are taking place about a three-day pause in the Israel-Hamas war. NBC News says the U.S. and Israel are discussing a pause to allow for more humanitarian aid into Gaza and the possible release of some of the hostages held by Hamas. The report also says that Qatar is acting as an intermediary. Catholic pro-life activist Mark Houck and his wife Ryan Marie have filed lawsuits against the FBI and the DOJ. The lawsuits allege that the FBI's decision to arrest and prosecute Houck was, quote, malicious and, quote, intended to accomplish an illicit corrupt purpose not in the interest of justice. The family is represented by Graves Garrett, a Kansas City-based law firm. The GOP presidential hopefuls are blaming former President Trump for last night's election losses just hours before they take the debate stage tonight. Dr. Gil Carter, director of debate at the University of Florida, says it may not matter who wins the debate tonight since Trump is so far ahead in the polls. Because if you win that group, congratulations, you won 30 percent. He's still got 70. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and others wasted no time directly or indirectly calling out Trump for the Republicans' underwhelming showing last night. Trump, the overwhelming favorite, according to polls, is skipping the debate again and will hold a rally tonight. And St. Benedict's Catholic Church in Baltimore is all but shut down after its pastor was dismissed over repeated claims of sexual abuse. The Baltimore Archdiocese said in a news release that St. Benedict will permanently end masses, worship, and administering the sacraments after Father Pascal Morlino was dismissed in mid-October. The Archdiocese said it immediately reported the allegation to law enforcement when it was raised last week. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. There's a long-standing uh, Catholic tradition about dying well, um, and it may not get quite the attention uh, it deserves, but as one ages and one sees one's friends uh, dying, it, you're bound to ask questions about what does it mean uh, to die well, especially now where we've got such extraordinary uh, medical technology, which is a blessing in so many ways. Um, and we've also got 
um, advocacy movements uh, in favor of what well, what we used to call euthanasia. Uh, it's more euphemistically called now medical assistance in dying. And I mentioned earlier that Canada has just released its annual euthanasia report and says that more than 13,000 Canadians uh, received uh, euthanasia one way or the other last year. And that's roughly 4% of all the deaths in the country. Uh, in the United States, uh, again, this conversation is going to continue on. My guest, Dr. Stephen Dorn, is a part of that conversation. He is a practicing neurosurgeon in Omaha, and he recently has authored the book To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. He has over 25 years of experience. He's a board-certified neurosurgeon. He's also permanent deacon. He serves as the bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. He writes professionally uh, in academic journals and national media outlets on topics of bioethics, neurosurgery, and gene therapy for brain disorders. Uh, He and his wife, Sharon, uh, have five sons and are co-founders of Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. Steve, good to have you back here. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Al. It's, it's a pleasure and an honor to be back. Uh, this is, a gr- I think, a great contribution. Uh, I'm excited about it. I, I think that, um, you know, especially as we see baby boomers aging, we see really fundamental questions about, uh, quote, a good death, uh, uh, and what does that mean? So let me start there, in fact, because I think many people might be surprised to know that uh, in the history of Catholic thought and pra- pastoral practice, there has been uh, an emphasis on having a, quote, good death. Uh, tell me a little bit about the history here and what the Church means by a good death. Yeah, and I, and I think even before we dive into that, I think it's important for us to define what the Church believes death is, and then you can see Very how good. this all, all grows from that, right? Sure. So, so death is the unnatural separation of the soul from the body. The separation of the soul from the body, that's what death is. And so if we start with that premise, then we can see where what the Church teaches about death, it all flows from that reality of what, of what the definition of death is. And so, uh, and it's been that way from, from, from time beginning, you know, even as far back as you know Saint Paul. He would he was he would talk about the the you know our our bodiliness and and um, our souls and um, and all of this being uh, the goodness of our our uh, grace being infused to us at, at our baptism. So so yeah, this this history began just immediately after the 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 death and and uh, resurrection of Christ. And so so that's where it's fundamentally started with. Um, and so, but then later you um, see that um, uh, there became more formal uh, teachings, uh, or, or maybe I would say resources that came out back in the uh, uh, the back Black Plague. Um, you know, a third of the population of I think it was about a third of the population of Europe died, and that included the clergy. And yeah. so, um, individuals didn't have access to the clergy for the sacraments. And so, there's this pamphlet that went went around and had a couple different. Um, versions went on, but basically it was meant to help people um, uh, prepare for death. And um, and it starts off by saying, um, the very opening line of this book, which was called The Ars Moriendi, The Art of Dying, it said, it's very important that everyone should have the art of dying well, 
but very rarely does someone prepare himself properly for death at the right time, as everyone believes they're going to live for a long time, and they never believe that they're so close to death. Yeah. I mean, of course, the great irony, that hasn't changed, has it, Al? No, that's, that's, that, that's still that's the exactly case. what we deal with now. Yeah. 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 So this, these pamphlets kind of circulated and were very helpful. They had these these beautiful woodblock paintings to, to, to instruct the faithful. Then what was really good, a couple of hundred years later, uh, St. Robert Bellarmine, he, he published this devotional work, which you can get, um, you know, for next to nothing online, you know, um, uh, called The Art of Dying Well, and um, highly recommend it. Um, and he, he starts off with what, uh, you know, should be self-evident. He says that he who lives well will die well. Hmm. He who lives well will die well. And so, so again, this kind of harkens back to our, our baptism, right? The, the, the life of, of discipleship, the life of grace, the life of living well begins with our baptism. And so, so I think that's, that's a really important thing for us to consider. This isn't just something that happens to us at the end of our life. You know, it's, it's a process, it's a journey that begins from the moment of our birth and our baptism. I know it's difficult to get outside of our own time in uh, place, but I'm just curious, uh, do you think, uh, are we today, uh, we've removed, we, hit, death is often hidden. Um, we, people go to uh, nursing homes, funerals are no longer associated with homes, wakes don't take, don't take place in homes. Um, and there's a lot, of, a lot of attention to hiding death, repressing it keeping it away from us. Do you have any sense if that's worse today than it was a few centuries ago? Well, I, th- I think in many ways it, it, it is worse because what's happened is, is that, um, you know, uh, illness and disease, uh, healthcare in general has become what I would say medicalized. You mm-hmm. know, what, what do I mean by that? Medicalized in that, you know, disease and death are, are the enemy and that technology and medicines are the weapons against that enemy. And then if um, um, we lose that battle between those two things, well, then we might as well just give up altogether and move on to the next problem. So I think more and more patients regrettably are seen as a, a problem to solve or a challenge to solve as opposed to a person. And I think it comes back to the, the fact that the, the spiritual realities of, of who we are as a unified body and soul are, are uh neglected forgotten never never appreciated and we're seen as um you know kind of this dualism where there's this separation of the spiritual from the from the corporal the spiritual from the bodily and and um and that feeds into our culture in so many different ways you know this this you know the sacred and the secular have to be separate from each other the the bodily and the spiritual have to be separate from each other and i think unfortunately medicine is Bought into that, if nothing else has maybe even fueled the fire. I'm just curious, uh, from the standpoint of your own career, uh, have you? What's it like to be, you know, an observant Catholic who actually integrates his faith with his uh, medical practice? I mean, you're concerned to be faithful in these matters. Does that give? Is that difficult uh, within this uh, ethos uh, of medicalizing death? Well, um, the difficulty probably is more an internal struggle than anything. Um, you know, it's kind of funny how that, that physicians, by and large, don't don't confront each other, which 
you would think they'd be willing to call each other out or call each other on, but they don't. They kind of keep in their little silos. And so if there's people out there, physicians out there who, who don't, who, who are un, who are uncomfortable with integration by faith in their practice, they keep it to themselves. Maybe they feel something, but they, they certainly don't express it to me. Mm. And I'll tell you that certainly patients, if given the opportunity, and all, all it takes is just a little crack. The door has to open just a tiny bit. You know, patient might say something like, oh, you know, people are praying for me or God bless you, whatever the case may be. There, if there's this little window opening, it becomes a chance to 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 now bring faith into that uh, relationship between the physician and the patient. And I have never, ever had any patient ever uh, reject um, the offer for prayer. Now, wow. I'm, I'm careful, you sure. know, I'm cautious, you know, I should say prudent, I guess would be a better word, you know, not to impose or proselytize. But but I think that, that the battle, primarily speaking for myself, and maybe other people can uh, relate with this, the battle's in, an internal one. It's one of fear. It's one of a sense of inadequacy, uh, maybe regret over past sins, feeling unworthy, whatever the case may be. So, so I think any disciple faces those same fears. Well, I shouldn't, shouldn't, you know, uh, uh, assume anything about anybody else. I'll just say for myself, those, okay. that's my problem. <laughs> you know, that's my problem. Everybody's got their own issues, but, yeah. but yeah, it's it's an internal battle. It really is. You know, um, my I, my mother passed away last year, and I was there. And um, we did everything we could to ensure a, a good death. Uh, of course, you know, you never know what a person is experiencing, um, but it was certainly a peaceful death. Is a good death the same as a peaceful death? Well, that's what our secular society certainly would like us to believe, and certainly yeah. those are beautiful things. And I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss, but also so grateful that you were there with her, and, yeah. and that's what I mean. That's what I would desire for myself and for my wife and my kids. That you know, we had the chance to be together, to pray together, to say our goodbyes, to um, not be overwhelmed by suffering and pain. And and yes, that is a good death. But is that the definition of a good death? Heavens, no. I mean, Jesus Christ had the 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 perfect death, the greatest death par excellence, and he had the most horrific death mm. you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um and just have to look at the saints you know the the saints who've suffered so much throughout their lives or towards their end the martyrs and so yeah the absence of suffering is while it's desirable is not the hallmark of a good death by any means okay um let's uh we're gonna, a break is going to be coming up on us in just a moment here uh and i i'm going to want to come back on the other side of the break and discuss this uh concern i mean in canada now Euthanasia has become quite accepted. Looks from the report that I saw, over four percent, four point one percent of deaths are listed as uh, euthanasia deaths, and we don't see that, of course, here in the United States. But uh, we we do have places where people can uh, receive quote physician assisted suicide, and I, I want to talk with you about how you see uh, this going in our country, and. Uh, how Catholics and other Christians can push back uh, against it. My guest is Dr. Stephen Doran. He's the author of To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. I'm Al Cresta. Father Benedict Rochelle. There are legitimate differences of opinion in any religion. There are differences of opinion in Catholicism. 
But in Catholicism, you expect that people will take the teaching of its supreme authority seriously. To go diametrically opposed to those teachings is to not be a Catholic. Someone in the name of Catholicism is sponsoring the destruction of human life, lives of unborn children. And they got the name Catholic on the door. The highest authority in Catholicism and the encyclical Humanae Vitae, Evangelium Vitae, is absolutely clear that no Catholic can support abortion and that Catholics are responsible to take serious action against legalized abortion. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. How would you define the word beatitude? Webster's Dictionary defines beatitude as a state of utmost bliss and a declaration made in the Sermon on the Mount. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states that the Beatitudes are, in effect, a portrait of the man who declared them, Jesus Christ, depicting his countenance and portraying his charity. The Beatitudes also describe the attitudes and actions that should portray and depict his followers, true Christians. The Beatitudes are paradoxical in their promises. None seems more paradoxical than number eight, which proclaims, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. The paradox is that God is present even amidst trials and tribulations. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. 60 Seconds with Father Mitch Pacwa. Within the people of life and the people for life, that's who we are, the people of life and the people for life, part of our self-identity. The family has a decisive responsibility. This responsibility flows from its very nature as a community of life and love, founded upon marriage and from its mission to guard, reveal, and communicate love. The family And marriage has a mission to guard love, to protect it from false forms of love, from false uses of people, using people and abusing them. It also is to reveal love and communicate love. This is part of the family's and marriage's purpose. You reveal love to the world. You know, people say, oh, marriage is just a piece of paper. That's baloney. This is you saying to the public, I'm loving my wife and my husband and my children till death do us part. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health-sharing option. Curo's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness.
afternoon. I'm Al Cresto. With me, Dr. Stephen Doran, a neurosurgeon and Catholic deacon who has just published To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. I want to be getting to some of the particular issues uh, associated with uh, dying uh, well uh, as a faithful disciple. Well, we will talk about uh, medically-assisted nutrition. We'll talk about withdrawing care. We'll talk about advanced directives and uh, so much more. But I wanted to start out just with a general um, fix on the culture. I mentioned earlier, uh, Steve, that Canada, 4% of its deaths are euthanasia deaths. Are we seeing this same kind of trend in the United States? Yeah, we are. I mean, the numbers aren't the same. But if you look, for example, I, I just checked the um, they do an annual annual report, um, both in Oregon and uh, California, which are the states that uh, of, of the states that have assisted suicide uh, do the most of it. And, you know, and their numbers, uh, why they're not the same by any means as as, as Canada. The growth, the the growth of the use of it is is very similar. Those curves are um, are just, um, you know, it's like that hockey stick going just going up, up, up right now. And yeah. uh, so we're we're facing this. Uh, maybe not at the same scale, but but certainly on a on a worrisome trend. Which it just as you know, we we, we live in a we live in a throwaway culture, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and and if if people are seen as a commodity. And people are not seen as a unified body and soul, but rather just a commodity. It leads to all sorts of distortions in our culture. And on the one end of the spectrum, obviously, abortion. On the other end, uh, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and then everything in between on how people are treated if we're just seen as a commodity. So, yes, it's definitely an upward trend. Okay. Let me go to some of the issues surrounding uh, death. That I'll start with medically assisted nutrition. That's where you actually, uh, that's your lead chapter in the book. Um what does the church teach, and why is why is this an issue? Give me a like an. You start out with the story of Mark. Okay, tell me about Mark. So Mark was someone I met um, a few years after he was in this horrific auto accident, and he suffered a severe traumatic brain injury that he survived, but he um, uh, was unable to you know maintain nutrition and hydration on his own. So he so he had. Uh, uh, a feeding tube placed, and um, and I got to know him later on in his uh, life uh, when there was some um, some neurosurgical procedures that needed to be addressed, and that's how I met him and his mom. And so he he's a good example of of someone who who would otherwise have survived if um, you know I'm sorry would not have survived had he not received medically assisted nutrition. Um, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why this is presented early is because I would tell you that I, um, after writing this book, I've had a number of people come back to me and say, oh, I wish I would have had this at the time, or, or I'm so glad I have it now because I'm facing this with a parent. Because of, the one thing that troubles people a lot is, well, am I, am I starving my spouse to death or right. my parent to death or things like that? And and so it's a really important topic and it comes up quite a bit. And it really is one that people find especially distressing now. Mark ultimately died, you know, from complications of his head injury, but he didn't die of uh, starvation. You know, we all probably remember that very famous Terry Schiavo case, yeah. you know, where she did, you know, through the court systems, eventually uh, her feeding tube was withdrawn and she did die of starvation. So, so it's a very important issue and it has very uh, practical ramifications uh, associated with it. Now, tell me what the church teaching is on this. Well, it, it would say that... Um, in a basic sense, that 
nutrition and hydration are are a fundamental right, just like um, uh, housing is for people, and that we we are all owed that very fundamental care. And and it's not treatment. Uh, John Paul made it clear that this isn't treatment. This is care. You know, we are all entitled to food, clothing, you know, a, sh- a head over or a shelter over a head. And so, at the very fundamental level, this is not treatment. It's care. Now that said. That doesn't mean that every person who is nearing death should uh, have a feeding tube placed. And quite honestly, the majority of people really don't. And um, individuals who are actively dying um, are dying of their underlying process. They're not dying because of lack of hydration or nutrition. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really it's really a very relatively small number of people um, that that this even becomes an issue. Um, but but for that for that select group, and oftentimes it's people with neurological injuries, you know, stroke, a hemorrhage, or something like that, who are going to survive uh, for uh, past their initial insult. That's where it comes into place. But for people who are, you know, say actively dying of cancer, things like that, tends not to be an issue as much. Is it difficult for uh, loved ones to uh, assess uh, the medical uh, needs of uh, a patient? And to make a decision whether or not to uh, have a feeding tube, uh, nutrition and hydration. I mean, doctors, I get the impression that doctors uh, generally favor uh, not uh, uh, providing a feeding tube. Uh, When when are these times when a a person says a feeding tube is is no longer helpful? To my loved one. Well, I think um, there are circumstances where a, a feeding tube uh, isn't helpful. In fact, it, you know, towards the end of life, for example, um, we stop digesting food, and and um, uh, or maybe a, a, a patient's really agitated, and and they uh, repetitively pull the tube out. Mm. Or, you know, so yeah. there there's this idea of of when things become burdensome, that is the okay. the benefit. Uh, is is uh, outweighed by the, the the bad things associated with it. So there certainly are circumstances, even when someone already has a feeding tube, where just no okay. longer even is helpful, maybe even hurtful to them. I think one of the things you mentioned, you said that physicians aren't uh, oftentimes aren't overly um, encouraging of feeding tubes. I I think that's a true statement, and and I think that I'm not exactly sure why. I have my thoughts. I think some of it maybe there's this uh, tendency sometimes of physicians to try to unknowingly impose their own sense like, well, I wouldn't want that done. I would just want to, you know, and so, and so they, they, they impose that on the patient, you know, which is not fair, um, especially, or they just kind of throw out the options at the patient and walk out the door and not really talk about it and Mm -hmm. what it really means. What are the consequences? Mm -hmm. And so I think between those two things, maybe their own um, underlying insecurities and just the not willingness to take time. I, I agree with you. I think it's, there tends tends to be a, a bias against two feeds, and one of the things about uh, hospice care is wonderful. And, but one of the things about hospice care is that uh, two, if someone enters hospice care and they don't have a feeding tube, well, one won't be placed. That's kind of against the directives of hospice care. Um, hmm. And and if they do have a feeding tube in place, there's kind of this implicit. Um, uh, sense of, well, we probably should stop using this. Now, that's where I think palliative care, which is a, a different uh, a transition that people have some time to talk about, I think is a really good option where patients who are receiving palliative care still can receive treatment, still can receive hydration, nutrition, yet have the recognition that their the death is approaching. So so I think there's some good options there that need to be um, pro- uh, to presented to the patient. 
And and so listeners will be asking, well, who do I talk to when I'm facing these kind of situations? Well, that's why this hopefully begins not in the moment of crisis, that it begins long before then. Yeah. Um, that, um, you know, the, probably the mo- if, if, if people remember anything from our conversation today, I, I want them to, first of all, start thinking about, praying about, contemplating the reality of their own mortality, the reality of their own death, and, and have that time in prayer and contemplation, which then hopefully will move you towards having that conversation with someone that you love, um, someone that you trust, uh, someone who shares your faith, so that you can have that conversation well before it's needed, well before you're in crisis to say, okay, here, here's what I believe, here's what, the, here's what my faith teaches me. And, and so you begin that conversation before it's even, even a practical concern. Yeah. How often are you confronted with uh, someone who's found unresponsive at home, EMS is called, the patient is uh, intubated, breathing tube is placed in there, they arrive uh, at the hospital. Uh, how, how often do you face that kind of situation? Uh, very frequently, because you know, if you if you if you're unconscious and EMS is, uh, arrives, um, um, assuming you're still alive, that's what's going to happen. You yeah. know, it's the the default is to resuscitate, which is which is appropriate, right? I mean, you sure. if there's an opportunity to save someone's life, that's what should be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that um, initial, very appropriate decision to. Uh, 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 save someone's life, um, get them to the hospital, and then figure out what's going on, and then we can start making decisions. So right. that, that's actually a very common common thing that I encounter in my practice. And so when people are confused, I think, of when uh, uh, when does treatment become burdensome, and when should they stop life support? Yeah, that's a that and that's very much dependent upon the circumstances at the time, and okay. uh, which include the health of the patient, um, what what the underlying problem is, um, and and this is why I, I think you know um, living wills can be very dangerous because people think that they would only want certain things done or wouldn't want certain things done. They write it down in a document, and then the circumstances are you, you can't you can't predict what those circumstances might be. And so then having that person who can make decisions for you, who understands kind of in general what your desires are, that's a much more preferable thing because it, it is difficult and you can't, you can't go down some list of do this and do that. When you are confronted with this decision, okay, do I withdraw care now? And is this treatment become burdensome? It, it, a treatment that began as, as normal care can become burdensome over time. Right. You know, it's, it's not, not like once it's, um, established care, that means it's always established care. Not at all. I mean, I think common sense tells us that a person who has an incurable cancer receiving chemotherapy initially, over time it becomes clear that that chemotherapy is not effective and becomes burdensome with the side effects. We don't continue that treatment anymore, right? right and I right. think we, we intuit that. I think that's kind of harder sometimes when you have something so dramatic as, okay, someone's suffered some terrible event, now they've been placed on a ventilator, and now now what? And mm-hmm. And there can be, I think, a little bit of a, a misplaced responsibility. People feel like, okay, here's this, here's my loved one. They're on a ventilator, um, and now we have this, um, you know, futile situation where any care is futile, and um, the option of withdrawing care is given. I think they they can sometimes take on this un, unmerited responsibility. Well, if I do this, if I give them permission to withdraw the ventilator, I'm the one who's causing the death, and. Mm. And, and that takes some time, you know, I, I, I think if anything comes out of this too, is that 
people shouldn't feel rushed in their decisions, yeah. um, that people need time, they need support, you know, get all the troops together, get all the family together, help each other make these decisions, don't feel pressured, but also recognize that ultimately, you know, our lives are in the Lord's hand, right? Um, and he's the one who knows the day and the hour and we don't. And, and we make decisions with the best information that we have at the time. And so you would urge people to avoid living wills, but re, um, but come up with a, a different type of advanced directive, right? What would it Correct. be called? A durable power of attorney for medical care. Okay, durable power of attorney for medical care. That's the preferred way of going about this. It leaves the decision in the hands of loved ones, uh, not in the hands of technicians. We'll have more to say. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Father Benedict Groeschel. I don't think people should have negative fears of God, but I think you should get a lump in your throat. You should feel excited. Suppose I was going to take you and introduce you to the Pope or to the President of some country or something. You might get a lump in your throat. Forget it. Every day, you, I, live and move and have our being in the presence of God. These are the class of feelings we should have. And we should have them to an intense degree if we really had the sight of Almighty God. These feelings are the feelings which we shall have if we realize His presence. And in proportion, as we believe that He is present, we shall have them. And not to have them is not to realize, not to believe that God is present to us. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. 
Do you have a hard time getting your kids to open up? Maybe it's time to take a different approach. Kids, and especially teens, have a hard time with we-need-to-talk times. They tend to be afraid that they're going to be judged or criticized or lectured, so they shut down before they've even had a chance to open up. On the other hand, kids are much more likely to open up if you're spending time together on some activity. Fixing the car, baking cookies, shopping, taking a walk. It really doesn't matter so much what you're doing. It matters that you're creating the space you need for conversations to happen naturally. That's why taking time for family talk rituals is an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Stephen Doran, uh, practicing neurosurgeon and also bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. His book is called To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. Uh, I want to go to some of the, uh, the spiritual considerations, but before I do that, uh, I want to ask about brain death. What? How do we determine when a patient dies uh, in America, what's the agreed upon criteria? Well, you know that's um, it's a very good question and one that is uh, becoming more and more challenged um, in recent times. Mm-hmm. If we draw back even further, it used to be you were dead when your heart stopped and your stopped breathing. That was when people were dead. Yeah, and, we saw um, that in the movies all the time. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> put a mirror to their their you know nose, see if it fogs up, right. and. Uh, so that changed, though, with uh, organ transplantation, and now there became a need to determine when someone was dead by other criteria so organs could be used. Um, there are some other situations where the definition of death by brain death is used, but the, the biggest driver for that is is with organ transplantation. Hmm. So, um, you know, a number of years ago, it, it was the determined that a legitimate definition of death was brain death. Um, that is with the entire brain no longer functioning. And, you know, both John Paul II and Benedict XVI gave what I would consider provisional endorsement of that, meaning that as long as there's no ambiguity, as long as it's very clear, you know, this seems to be an appropriate uh, uh, definition of death. But but they also, John Paul also said, you know, the church doesn't make technical decisions. That's not what it's here for. Yeah. And I think it needs, you know, uh, to be open to, you know, as we gather new information and things can change. And and so what's challenged this idea of brain death as being legitimate definition of death is that uh, more and more um, individuals who have, um, I guess, for lack of a word, survived after being declared brain dead. Um, mm-hmm. There is, you know, dozens of women who are pregnant declared brain dead who continue to, you know, support the, the baby, give birth, you know, for weeks or even months. And even recently in the news, they've... There's been some experiments being done where patients who were declared brain dead were then given uh, pig kidneys um, to see if if a pig kidney could be uh, an appropriate, uh, it was a genetically modified pig kidney, to see if that would work. And so last I saw, one individual was kept, was supported on um, life support for months after being declared brain dead, yet was being experiment, experimented upon wow. 
with the kidney. So it really has raised a whole quagmire as a, as a brain dead person really dead. I think there's a lot of people who think that maybe there's a small portion of the brain called the hypothalamus that probably can, can still function well enough uh, to help sustain a lot of these other things like blood pressure and even hormone production. But there's not a good way to determine whether the hypothalamus is functioning or not. So it's it's created a, a real difficult situation where even secular people are saying, well, maybe we should just dump the whole idea of brain death altogether. But unfortunately, the secular people are saying, yeah, well, then we can use other less stringent criteria for for um, obtaining organs. And 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 the church is appropriately pushing back. The bishops say, no, 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 wait a minute. We can't go that route. We we have to stick to our guns and we got to figure out a better way of, of measuring brain death if we're going to stick with that as, as a, a way of declaring someone is dead or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, a Catholic in good conscience, though, can still donate his organs, right? Absolutely. And, um, and um, uh, I, I would just say that for, for, for now, yes, a Catholic in good conscience can donate their organs, and a, a Catholic in good conscience can receive those organs. I just think this is a, an ongoing discussion, that, uh, and the the chapter is not yet completed okay. in it. And magisterial teaching is itself in flux on this. Well, you know, the, the I, I I would say that I think the church is open on issues of ethics and life. Historically, various documents uh, have been updated, and and I think the church has has demonstrated an openness to look at things once new uh, information is acquired. Okay, flux may be too uh, pejorative a term. Right. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think the, it's the more church solid. Is, the church that. is great. <laughs> yeah. the, the the church. I love the church. I mean, I do too. What what other organization in in the entire world, the entire humanity, has looked at all these things? You right. Know, it's just a treasure trove. It's just amazing. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah. Let me let me ask some practical questions, uh, and sure. that is, anointing of the sick. Mm-hmm. Um. Where can it be practiced in an emergency situation? Uh, can can we have people in the emergency room anointing the sick? Uh, where do uh, priests and deacons go who uh, carry out this sacrament? Where, where can they go? Are they limited in the hospital? No, they're not. And and. I think it's important to make the the distinction that in in its truest sense, the anointing of the sick is reserved only to priests because ideally the anointing of the sick also includes uh, confession. Now, sometimes that's That's not possible and, you know, the patient's comatose, but yet the administration of that sacrament is properly done by a priest. So whether it's in the hospital bed or in the home or anywhere. Now, keep in mind, though, the church uh, doesn't necessarily say you have to be on your deathbed to receive the anointing of the sick. Anybody facing serious illness or, or serious surgery, it can appropriately receive the anointing. Um, I received it myself before I had uh, cancer surgery a number of years ago. And um, so so it's a beautiful sacrament and, and can be repeated and, and uh, used appropriately. It's not meant to be used for, for minor things, but any serious illness or, or injury, it's appropriately used. So the setting of it can vary, um, you know, tremendously. I I tell the story in a book of a of a man who received the anointing of the sick in the operating room while we're trying to get everything ready to do brain surgery on him. Wow! And it was very dramatic, and it was one of my favorite stories of of my career. <laughs> that's that's great. How, how about uh, when um, can a person receive Holy Communion as a person nears death? Um, when can you continue? When can you present viaticum? Yeah, that's a beautiful thing, Viaticum. It's a very special 
form of well, not on the Eucharist of the Eucharist, so it's a very special way of presenting the Eucharist that someone who truly is nearing the end of their earthly life and viaticum, you know, me- literally meaning food for the journey, uh, can be administered by you know uh, any lay person, any um, well, I would say anybody who's a Eucharistic minister. Otherwise, does not have to be a priest or a deacon. There's a a rite associated with it that uh, does not necessarily need the presence of a priest or a deacon or other ordained uh, ministers. So. Uh, the beauty of viaticum um, is that um, as long as a person is um, awake enough that you can be assured that they are able to um, um, receive the Eucharist or even in some situations, the precious blood, it can be given and repetitively, um, uh, you know, until that is no longer possible. Mm-hmm. It's a really beautiful, beautiful uh, thing, viaticum. Another practical question people ask is, is about cremation. Um, hmm. Years ago, uh, I guess it was fairly black and white, it, it, cremation, Catholics didn't practice cremation. Uh, apparently now uh, the Church is more flexible on this. Uh, tell me why. Well, I would say that um, the Church um, still maintains a, a strong preference for bodily bury, mm-hmm. burial, uh, but um, is... Um, some would say tolerates, maybe a too negative a word, but tolerates cremation or is okay with creation um, or cremation. I'm sorry. Part of the church's um, initial um, reluctance to accept cremation kind of stemmed out of it was a it was a practice that was kind of encouraged by you know some secular uh, organizations you know, that the church really uh, had problems with, um, and so. But there are practical concerns. Um, you know, there's no doubt that a bodily burial is more expensive than creation cremation. And so I think that the church recognizes that. Um, that said, though, if someone is cremated, it still needs to be, the remains need to be treated with utmost dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't make, you know, artificial diamonds out of them. We don't wear them as an amulet around our neck or put them on yeah. the our mantle in, a, in an urn. It's, 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 uh, if someone is cremated, they, they still need to be properly interned. We don't scatter ashes you don't scatter ashes, yeah. right? Exactly. Don't scatter ashes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is something that is coming up uh, more and more. Uh, people want to know uh, what the church's attitude is on this, and uh, again, there's some measure of prudence uh, involved. Um, you emphasize the separation of body and soul in your definition of death. That's that's fundamentally how the church sees death as this unnatural separation between uh, body and soul, what can the dying person expect to experience as they approach death? What comes next? Well, um, you know, the Church has traditionally taught that um, um, what is called the the four last things, and, and maybe people have heard that before, and and those four last things, or what comes next, you know, include you know death, uh, which is followed uh, by judgment, and mm-hmm. and that judgment either leads to um, heaven or to to hell. Um, traditionally, the four last things um, doesn't include purgatory um, because you know the, the 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 idea is that if you're in purgatory, you will ultimately be in heaven. So right, right. so that's the the very traditional treatment of what happens when we die. We die, we're judged, and we go to heaven or we go to hell. And um, um, so that's what, again, this preparation for death uh, uh, begins 
you know, at our baptism, that preparation of living a good life so that we have a good death is something that um, begins, you know, very, very early in, in, in life. Um, because um, ultimately we, we do, the church teaches very clearly that there is judgment that occurs after we die. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very clear on that. It, it, I mean, it's fair to say we, we know we will all die. And there's going to be some measure of suffering associated with death. Uh, and I guess the question I have is, with hospice care, um, can you trust, generally, can you trust hospice care? And is that different than palliative care? Yes, I think you can trust hospice care. And um, um, I think that... Um, Yes, there's a difference between palliative care and hospice care. Hospice care first uh, came into um, common use not not too terribly long ago, uh, 50s or in the 50s. And the idea is that as someone approaches death, um, they're um, allowed to die, you know, as uh, pain-free as possible in a setting that's comfortable. Um, all those things that we talked about that are good things and, and desirable things. And, and then once you're in hospice care, you also... Um, no longer receive active treatment for any diseases that come up, meaning even if you had a, an infection, pneumonia, or something like that, generally, if you're in hospice care, um, you don't receive treatment for it, those things. Hospice care is a covered benefit from Medicare. That's a practical consideration uh, mm-hmm. to keep in mind. Um, people can receive hospice care in a variety of settings. Uh, in their home is the most typical place. You can receive hospice care at special hospice centers, and, and sometimes people are even under hospice care while in the hospital itself. So hospice can be a very good thing. Uh, I think what's a more recent development, I think has been a very welcome development, is what's called palliative care. And palliative care is is kind of an intermediate step between um, aggressive treatment of everything um, and versus n- no treatment uh, with hospice. Palliative care recognizes that the end of life is nearing, um, doesn't necessarily define how long that might be, but it allows also for ongoing active treatment, you know, yet while recognizing that that someone has a disease process that is likely going to lead to their death. So it's been a very welcome um, welcome development. Uh, pain control is a, a big part of both palliative care and hospice care mm-hmm. and uh, uh, a very, very good development in medicine. Well, Steve, let me thank you again for this great contribution. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be a blessing to so many Catholics. I hope it gets in their hands, and I thank you uh, for the work that you do and the work that you accomplished in the book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Al. It's really a pleasure. Thank you so much. Dr. Stephen Doran, it's called To Die Well. Everyone should have a copy of this. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? even things you don't believe in, there are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. We're celebrating All Saints Day, and on this week's Pull of the Week, we want to know which one is your favorite. There's lots of great ones to choose from, so go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Pull of the Week to let us know. Dr. Ray Garendi. He's not on drugs. Parents will come into my office. 
and describe a litany of trouble about this long. Then they'll say this, I'm giving you the wrong impression. Overall, he's a pretty good kid. How so? Well, he's not on drugs or anything like that. One of the new moral high bars out there, he's not on drugs. You want to raise a child not with the absence of pathology, but with the presence of virtue. She's miserable with me, but she treats everybody else great. Again, not the absence of bad behavior, but the presence of good behavior. He's not on drugs? <laughs> It's a rationale. May provide some comfort. It's not a path to virtue. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, and let me put in a final plea for the book To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life. Uh, Steve is grounded in the magisterial teaching of the Church. Uh, he is quick to share his uh, professional knowledge, his personal experience, spiritual insight. Um, he's a great storyteller, and so you get straightforward conversational uh, language throughout each chapter, uh, and it's richly illustrated with uh, fitting and applicable stories. And this is a, an area which uh, is going to be of increasing importance. Uh, America is going through a crisis regarding death, and Catholics are ones who can champion this idea of dying well, the art of dying. So I recommend it to you. Uh, it's available in the online bookstore. And uh, let me thank you for being with me today. Catholic Answers Live coming up right now to answer your questions. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.